Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now let's dive into today's episode. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. In my book, Groundhog Day is an Event, Not a Business Strategy, one of the key themes behind the spring formula around around which that book is designed is the idea of achieving maximum results through minimalism. And one of the ways that we can achieve those maximum results is through a process of automation that drives growth. Folks will sometimes get really, really crazy with their automations and how they put things together and what they need to have in place to achieve a balanced entrepreneurial life through systems in their business. And I'm here to tell you that it actually is not that much of a hard thing. In fact, it can be a very fun thing. And for that reason, I'm very, very happy to have with us somebody who we've been looking to have on Business Creators Radio for a, war, for a while. And when we had the opportunity to get this person on our show and find somebody who can help you finally conquer your business, because others have done it and so can you, we jumped on the opportunity. His name is Brandon Vaughn, and he is the founder of Automate, Grow, Sell the CEO of Automate Grow Cell, where he helps small business owners systemize and scale their businesses through personalized mentorship and training programs. He has quite a story, and he's going to tell us that in just a second. But first of all, let's bring him in. Brandon Vaughn, the weather is fine. Come on in. Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. Pleasure to be here. At this point, I imagine some of our listeners have opened a separate browser tab, and they're binging the, and they're binging the Yahoo out of the Googles looking for this guy named Brandon Vaughn, last name spelled V-A-U-G-H-N. You're welcome. And they're also looking to visit his website at agsconquer.com. So while you're doing that, what we want to do is, Brandon, I told people who you are very basically. And I know you have a bit of a story behind what's brought you to where you are. So if you could tell us that journey of what has brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and helping them make a difference for their community market and audience. Yeah, I'd be be happy to. Um, You know, so myself personally, my journey into entrepreneurship started from the inspiration of my dad. Uh, My dad was a business owner uh, since 1978, he was an owner, operator, window cleaner. So he had a very small window cleaning business called All Clean Window Service. And he ran that for about 33 years, uh-huh. uh, being the guy behind the squeegee. So literally every single job, he was on the ladders, he was on the roof cleaning gutters, and, of course. and uh, he was doing the technical work. And for many of those years, actually, since I was 14 years old, I homeschooled through high school and worked right alongside him as a, you know, as a technician, as a helper. 
And, um, you know, later on down the road, when I was no longer a teenager and started getting older, I decided to venture out and kind of do my own things. Uh, but we, we kind of came back and re-intersected again in 2011 uh, when my dad was diagnosed with heart disease. Uh-huh. And he was basically told that he couldn't do physical labor anymore. Um, you know, he could, Eesh. you know, no ladders, no carrying buckets, no doing any physical stuff anymore. And so the business at that point was, you know, doing about a hundred thousand a year. And, uh, just as you know, with, with basically no employees and he was just basically faced with completely shutting down the business. So that's what kind of led me to 2012, um, you know, joining back up with the family business and buying the company from him so he could retire and then kind of set out to grow the business from there. Well, I can tell you that your story sounds extremely familiar. In fact, at least one of our other guests told almost the exact same story where (laughs) his father owned a business and he was basically the chief cook, uh, chief chef cook, bottle washer, washer, however the hell that phrase goes. And and he got in a situation where he wasn't physically able to do it for whatever reason. Right. And in the case of the other person we had who told a very similar story, it fell upon the members of the family to sort of pitch in and do the work for him. Where your mm. story diverges slightly is you had a, an environment that sort of facilitated you getting involved in this level of entrepreneurship fairly early because you were homeschooled, and I envy you for that, believe me, and uh, and so you didn't necessarily have to sit in class from 7 a.m. to 3.15 p.m. and get a work permit for permission to drive the school instead of riding the school bus, and then to actually get another set of permission to hold down a job afterward, or have to persuade your guidance counselor your senior year, since you only need the three credits, and they're the first three classes in the morning, that you could just take those first three classes and not have to take a bunch of bullshit, but you could go out there and maybe uh, take some courses at the community college or get a job and maybe even get credits for that job or what have you. So you had a few things going for you, which, oh, gee, I think uh, I might be revealing something about right, uh, yeah. something that's sort of left over from my past. But, uh, <laughs> Tell us about it, Adam. Tell us about it, man. <laughs> but I basically just did. And, uh, and the fact that this is so close to you, I think, is yeah. sort of a motivator and aside from the person who was on our show who told almost the exact same story i've heard stuff like this a lot from people Mm. where they maybe they think they're indestructible or maybe they just Mm. never get around to creating the leverage and i got to a point in my business a couple years ago where i realized that the existing business i was in for reasons I'm not going to get into, just wasn't leverageable. And I had coaches tell me how to leverage it. And I tried to follow some of their stuff. And it was out of integrity. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, out of integrity in terms of out of alignment with my integrity is what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. But I recognized that I could take some of the same advice that you're going to share with us today and do something slightly different with it. So if I have one business that really is just going to involve me because it is my own personal brilliance and passion. And I can't make a mini Adam to do it because mm. it just is so much my own 
brain and my own creativity. It's like, uh, it'd be like Pablo Picasso uh, finding yeah. somebody on Upwork to do his paintings for. It just <laughs> wouldn't true. work. Right, yeah. uh, but I recognize that, and this is what I'm in the process of doing right now, what we've been doing with In Demand Expert, which is our new media firm, is creating a business that can be leveraged, that mm-hmm. can be automated so it can grow and sell. And that's a lot of what we're going to cover here today. So what I'd like to do is sort of get started is ask a broad question so we can start to bring this down. How can you build a rock star company, no matter, or rock star company culture, no matter how many employees you have? You know, I, I think that, um, you know, it actually kind of the, the big turning point for me in my business. So, you know, when I was in 2012, bought this company. Um, really honestly had no idea what I was doing. I mean, you know, I, I bought the business for my dad, set up a monthly pl- payment structure with him that was basically for life. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was sizable, um, you know, cause he needed to be able to retire both him and my mom. Um, but as we started kind of growing, uh, we, we got to a point to where we hired on a few employees and a couple of years after that, you know, I had a, a small team on my hands. Um, and what ended up happening was, is we were booked out solid for about, two months uh-huh. and we had over half of my employees quit on me Ooh. uh within the course of about 30 days and this was it was basically a competitor who you know came in and offered to pay a lot more money and uh it's when i had my first panic attack and when i had my first panic attack i was pretty much done and i of course blamed everything on my employees and said employees suck i quit like I was done. I didn't, I was like, my dad had it right all along. Don't, don't get uh-huh. employees, <laughs> you know, but it actually led me down this path of kind of a, uh, learning a little bit more about company culture and investing in your employees and caring first and foremost about their dreams and their goals in life. And then finding a way to bridge what they're interested in and what they're passionate about with uh, how they could find alignment by focusing on, the company and its dreams and its goals. And when you kind of have that them centered focus first, uh, it ends uh-huh. up coming back around full circle to where you have this really amazing company culture. And, you know, from then we went from you know, zero employees to 70 employees in, in just basically about five years. And it was, uh, it was a big game changing moment for me, which of course, you know, usually a big pit of despair ends up being a big turning point. Uh, but that was a, a game-changing moment for me that kind of led towards this uh, exploration of a company culture and focusing on uh, your employees' hopes and dreams first. Yeah, and I'm a big believer, and I actually cover some of this inside my book. Uh, it's actually the R section of the spring formula, the ripple effect and how to avoid it, mm. that it goes back to that phrase we hear from a number of different folks. Like, I'm not even sure who to properly attribute it to. And it comes down to, if you want to treat your customers well, treat your employees well. And what I'm gathering is that's a piece of what you're sharing with us is the importance of how you treat your employees. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, whatever that's, um, whatever you put out towards your employees, um, you know, of connecting to them. I mean, cause let's be honest with, when, my employees specifically, they didn't grow up dreaming to be a window cleaner or a roof cleaner or an exterior cleaner. Uh, but one of the things practically that we did was whenever we interviewed the, our employees or we brought them onto our team or we did performance reviews, um, you know, we asked them you know, what their ultimate dreams and 
visions were in life. And some of them said, man, I, I, I've always wanted to be a graphic designer. I want to be, you know, do my own video editing, or I'd like to do the web development, or, um, you know, even be a business owner. So we would actually strategically uh, set them up with courses on lynda.com and help them learn those skill sets and start developing uh, external career path that meant that when they left our company, they would, it would put them on the path, path toward that. Or even if there was an opportunity within our company as we grew to be able to move into one of those lanes. And I think that approach was really counterintuitive to a lot of business owners because they you know, kind of have this death grip on their employees that they don't want to lose them. Uh-huh. But when you start focusing on your employees on, on how you can serve them first, uh, we got the most viciously loyal employees and the most rock star company culture. And we had almost an endless pipeline of referrals for people that wanted to join our team because we did do things differently. And this wasn't anything that I, you know, originally came up with uh, a, a big game changing book for me was reading the dream manager by Matthew Kelly. Uh-huh. It's, um, it's just an amazing book that kind of covers some of these things and, you know, investing in your employees first. Yeah. And I think, and I think we see some of that in some corporate cultures. I remember there was a company I worked for and that company was so great that uh, the day I was forced to resign to this day, I celebrated it as my second birthday. I even wrote a chapter in a book about it. that was an international Amazon bestseller. But the point being is that You know, you get to this point, as you said, they have a death grip on their employees. And the situation I was in is the owner of the company was paranoid that people might be interviewing with other firms. And let me tell you how far this paranoia went. Um, If they found out you had an interview with another company for even whether it was a competitor, whether it was a completely different industry, they'd just fire you. I mean, there wouldn't even be any question about it. Oh, man. And... Beyond that, I remember there was one time I'd been there about four or five months and I got injured enough that I, it was painful enough that I went to the emergency room. And anybody that knows me knows uh, that I will do anything to avoid an emergency room. There, I still have a scar on my finger that wraps all the way around it from the time when I was a kid that I almost cut my finger off on a piece of broken glass. And I refused to go to the ER and insisted on healing it by taping a popsicle stick to it. Uh, so, that, that, so that just puts in perspective how much I avoid medical care. So that was a Thursday night, and so Friday I couldn't I couldn't get to work. I mean, I was I was awake till almost three o'clock in the morning, and I, I could barely move my arm. It was a it was a very severe uh, muscle type injury, the type of thing that goes away in three days. But while you're going through it, you can't move your arm, and it's like a living hell. Mm. So I think I got nine calls at home that day from my supervisor, mm. and some of it was, "Oh, I'm looking for this file," or. And another case, she uh, decided that uh, I needed to change the voicemail password. And another case, I had to re-record my voicemail greeting. It was ridiculous stuff oh, like yeah. that. Yeah. And the reason behind it is I found out, because people rarely called off from this company. They just got fired. They disappeared. But very rarely did anybody call off sick. I didn't know this existed. They actually had a policy that if you said you were home sick, they would just keep calling and calling and calling and calling to make sure you answered and you weren't out taking an interview. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. What a culture. I bet oh, you, yeah, I bet I you felt great. super warm and embraced. <laughs> oh, I'm still feeling a chill, and it was 19 years ago. Now, wow. contrast that. 
contrast that to my my friend Skip Weissman of your championship company. He taught me something that was extremely valuable when I heard it. If you have a culture where you have this level of courage, I'm going to bring this up because I think you um, I think this will tie into what you're sharing with us. If you have a culture that values its employees and you find out that somebody in your organization is thinking about quitting, you, you get a sense that they're uh, going by the letter of the law, their job description, punching at eight, going home at 4.30, taking the whole hour for lunch, and they start to give the telltale signs that they're taking interviews for other jobs. You can approach them about that and tell them candidly that you've had that sense that they're maybe thinking about moving on. And here's what you do with them. You create an understanding if it turns out that the case that's the case that you understand that they need to look out for themselves that you want to support them in that and that you'll do everything reasonably within their power to make sure they get what they need which includes understanding if they need to go to interviews or knowing that the time is coming they're going to go mm-hmm. and the deal you make with them is you will support them in any way you can yep in exchange while they are it working for you while they're in the office, punched in for the day, they give you 100%. Mm-hmm. And that is actually an extremely effective retention tool because it will tell that person who may be thinking about quitting a couple things. One of which is, hey, you know, this isn't perfect and I do have some issues here, but they really seem to care about me. Maybe I'll sort of stick around and see if I can work some of this stuff out. Right. And... What that leads to is a second item, which is in many cases, they just call off their job search and stay. Yeah, it's true. They have, I I think they've done, well, they have done uh, surveys of hundreds of thousands of employees and asked them what matters most to an employee and money is never at the top of the list. Correct. It's, It's always appreciation and recognition and, you know, a positive work environment. Um, you know, those, those types of things have such a bigger impact. And the problem is, is so many business owners, they get so caught up in, you know, oh, well, maybe I'll give you a dollar an hour raise, or maybe I'll do this or, oh, well, he got poached because so-and-so paid him more when very often that's not the case. Now you can certainly be underappreciated by not getting paid enough. Yeah. You know, if it's, if there's some big, huge gap, but at the end of the day, how you show appreciation and recognition for your employees is everything, especially, especially with millennials and the new generation that we have coming into the workforce. Uh-huh. I mean, you, you have to, you have to master that skill set. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, people are so down on millennials. You hear this all the time. Oh, they're, they're lazy. They must be a millennial. Well, that's yeah. actually not the case because Indeed. some of the millennials I know are actually some of the most dedicated people that you would want to have working for your company or be your Indeed. business partner or be your contractor or work for because they came of age in an era where work evolved into being an opportunity to make a difference rather than an obligation to be fulfilled. So they are in tune with the idea that they can come to your workplace and they can really do great things that make the world a better place, make the company a better place, and give them a sense that they have moved the needle on improving the situation for all of humanity. And man, if you create a if you create a little space for them to have that feeling, oh yeah, that, uh, that, that can work very well for you. Yeah, 
Yeah. Impact, right? I mean, that's what, uh-huh. that's what they crave. They crave being able to have some kind of an impact on some kind of a level. And actually right. most, most of my workforce in my company, they, they were all millennials, all of them. Uh, but when we came in to the office and we came into our shops, uh, it felt like family. And we had people that always commented that it just kind of felt like family. Uh, one of the things we did is we actually had uh, business books in every single one of our, of our office locations. Uh, we had all different kinds of personal development and business books uh, inside of our library that people could take at any point in time. Didn't have to pay for them. Didn't have to check them out. They could take them. They could bring them back. They could keep them. Uh-huh. But we had them stocked on the shelves with books like, you know, Leaders Eat Last and Start With Why and Seven Habits of Highly Successful People and how to, you know, um, how to, uh, uh, inf- oh my gosh, can't even, can't even think of it. The Dale Carnegie book, um, how, to, how to influence, how to um, influence. I'm, yeah. blank, I'm blanking. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know. I got you. <laughs> so we, we uh, had all of those books that were on there just available for people uh, to be able to level up their lives. Um, at our team meetings, we actually would sit down and rather than just talk about how everyone's performance was the week before and what were the outstanding issues, uh, we would hand out uh, sheets to all of the employees on how to create a family household budget. You know, the things that don't get taught in, in school. Yeah. Uh, how, how, do you, how to manage your taxes, um, how to improve your credit score. That was something that, I mean, I still for the life of me can't understand why they don't teach this thing and you don't teach these things in school. And, you know, showing things where you're actually investing in them outside of their professional life, but also into their, you know, skill sets of, of personal life and being a better human uh, dramatically changed our retention rates in our business. And it's funny how that works when they can get that little bit of extra through the company, what a difference it makes. And sometimes it's even simpler things. Like if uh, you, uh, if you are working in an urban downtown area and your company handles your monthly public transportation pass for you to discount. Yes, exactly. Just little things, little things like that, that incredibly will give people a sense that you feel that you really appreciate them. And, you know, those, and those are important things. And a lot of companies give you 401k matching and things like that. And just take that one step further. So what are you doing to create wealth for, for your family, for your next generation? Uh, how can we be of support to you to help you be in a good financial situation? Because you want your employees to be in a good financial situation because, even if they uh, feel trapped, like they couldn't get another job or their life would fall apart if they lost their job with you, if mm-hmm. they are walking around under a cloud of debt and fear, they're not going to be giving you their best. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Now, there's something you shared with me uh, before we came out of the green room here. Uh, some of the easiest ways to ruin a business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's um, there's there's definitely uh, a lot of ways that you can tank a business, and and at one point I felt like I was an expert in all of them. Um, you know, one thing before I came back and bought the business from my dad was um, I actually started up my own construction business, and let me let me tell you for. Uh, one of the things that you can do, if, or you know, a little business tip for you is if you want to start a construction business, do it just one year before the big, huge economic downturn. Oh, yeah. Because that's what I did. And that worked uh-huh. out, you know, really, really well for me. Oh, yeah. We had, uh, we had our business that completely tanked uh, my construction company. And it was, it was um, man, it was brutal. And, I, and one of the biggest things that 
kind of comes along with ruining your business is the first one is, you know, going with the flow and just kind of, um, you know, being, being very reactive, not being proactive. Um, uh-huh. one of the big things that I like to talk about is uh, running towards problems. Um, the, have you ever heard of the, the illustration of the Buffalo? About Tell being, me about it. Being like the Buffalo. So cows, when they're out in the middle of a field and they see a storm coming over the, over the mountains, they immediately turn 180 degrees and they run away from the storm as fast as they possibly can. And what happens is, is as the storm starts coming, it eventually overtakes them. And then now the cows are running in parallel. They're running with the storm and they're getting pelted. They're getting beat up. They're being thrashed uh, even more while they're kind of running along with the storm and they endure all that pain and suffering for longer. Whereas buffaloes, they actually turn and they charge the storm. And this is true. They, they will, if they see, sense a storm coming, they'll actually run towards it. And because they're running towards a storm, they go through, they hit it, they still get pelted, but they go through it a lot faster. And one of the things that I see um, uh, so often is that business owners, they don't have any kind of a strategic plan on, uh, you know, how they will head off problems when they actually come into their business. Um, instead, what they do is when they see something that looks a little bit uneasy, they run away from them. So a really good way to tank your business and to ruin your business very quickly is to be in that reactive mindset uh, rather than actually taking a look in it, you know, down the road and taking a look down a path that says, uh, you know, man, we really got to start heading off some of these problems uh, to begin with. Um, and I think that's, I think that's a really important thing to do. Yeah. Uh, what did Winston Churchill said? He said, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, and, and I think, I think, I think there's something to that. And there's a form of martial arts. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but I, I, there's somebody on our, our show here might've been Dan Locke. I'm not sure, but it was somebody who shared on social media very recently about this form of martial arts that they were aware of. And this particular school does not teach you how to defend yourself. It only teaches you how to attack. And it's actually kind of for the same reason that if you want to win the battle, you keep moving forward. Mm. I love that. I love that. Yeah. yeah I, I found that very interesting. I think, I think that's a hundred percent true. Um, I think that, you know, the, for a lot of business owners, they, they have this vision and this plan of where, where they want to go. But at the end of the day, they're not actually executing on it. Um, you know, execution is such a massive part of actually getting and moving the needle forward in your business. You have all these great, wonderful ideas and these things that you're going to do, but then if you're lacking an execution, you know, nothing's ever getting done. So I, I like that approach of just always making sure that you're driving forward with that. Yeah. So part of what we're here to discuss today is automation and systems. And there are a couple of things I want to cover in terms of automations and systems and things like that. But first of all, I want to hear your definition of why you feel these things are important. I, I think um, a lot of it comes down to, you know, what I personally witnessed in my own life with my father. You know, he had a, a bus factor of one. Um, what I mean by bus factor is, is, is literally one person in the business had to get hit by a bus uh, for the business to be in serious trouble or completely disappear, right? right. Just for, for game over. And it really led me down, especially when I bought the business for my dad, <clears throat> he had all of this knowledge that was up inside of his head about, 
you know, which customers needed this, um, you know, what, what specific types of, um, you know, of, of processes you had to follow. Uh, he'd look at a house and he'd take a step back and he'd say, yeah, that, that, that should be about like, you know, $475 to do that house. And I'd ask him, well, how, how do you know that? He's like, well, because it's going to take four hours. Okay. But you know, how, how do you know that? <laughs> how right. do you know that house is going to take you four hours because he had all these years of experience and all this stuff just kind of came second nature to him. So when your business is so heavily dependent upon you and the knowledge that you have inside of your brain and the systems that you internally have, uh, when all of that is so dependent on you, uh, you, you can never scale and you never break out of that business factor of one. So to me, the path of actually growing is, is there's only so many hours you have in your time bucket every single week. And as your business begins to grow, if you're the one who, you know, you're always the biggest bottleneck in your company, no matter what size you are, it's you that's the biggest bottleneck in your company taking, taking that action and, and putting the systems in place and the resources to be able to grow your business. That's your, your charge as CEO. So uh, for me, it was a, it was a big game changer when I, you know, read the book, the e-myth by uh, Michael Gerber and um, you know, finally discovered this concept of systems and uh, just kind of became obsessed with putting systems in, in place in my company. Um, and it made a radical difference, um, you know, putting those things in place and starting to get that information out of your brain and into systems and processes. Well, here's, um, here's what I like to share with folks. And you may hear this from the solopreneur. They say, well, my hourly rate is, 100, is $100 an hour. So not bad. Okay. I mean, that, I mean, for somebody like a web developer or uh, a social media person who actually creates instead of just implements, $100 an hour is not too far from the median or the mean on that. So reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. So they'll do this real simple mathematical equation to get some four weeks of vacation. It works like this. They'll say, all right, so $100 an hour and 40 hour work week. So I'm going to multiply that by 40. So we'll do the math here. So 100 100, uh, come on, calculator work, 100 times 40. All right, so we got $4,000 coming in a week. So far, so good. Not, a, not, a, not bad for a weekly income. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, they said they're going to get four weeks of vacation. So instead of multiplying that by 52, we'll multiply that by 48. So that $4,000 work week, and we're going to do 48 of those a year, comes out to $192,000. I mean, mm -hmm. you could probably get by on that. And mm -hmm. as long as your overhead was fairly low, if this is actually your own work, you could be, you know, support a family of, with three kids and pretty good comfort, probably pay for good college educations that have nice Christmases, things like that. I mean, does that sound about right to you? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Here's the catch. Here's the catch. Uh, how many folks actually work 40 hours a week, even if they're in work mode for 40 hours? None. Exactly. <laughs> so, if you're, so if you're doing billable hours, you yeah. might make half that realistically. Easily. I've seen studies that show that uh, you have people working in offices and it's an eight-hour workday. Maybe about 45 minutes of their time there actually contributes to the revenues of the company. 
Wow. Yeah. It may be higher with window washers because if they're not washing the windows, what, I mean, what else are they doing? Driving to and from the sites, maintaining their tools, that doesn't take seven hours and 15 minutes. So in your business, maybe the preponderance of their time is actually washing the windows and bringing money into the company. So it's not a universal role. But think about all those office situations. If you've ever worked in a cube farm and mm -hmm. the person sitting in the cube two steps down from you who happens to be so-and-so's niece or nephew spends seven and a half hours a day arguing with their significant other who's an asshole because <laughs> i and i i've i've had that situation where i've had to listen to that all day i mean we can, we can go back 15 years uh one of the last jobs i had before i became an entrepreneur this was before memes and you know what came before memes email forwards mm -hmm. so i remember sitting there once listening to this person two cubes down and they forwarded this funny email to nine of their friends. And then I listened while she called each one of, the, of her friends to have a 15 minute conversation about that forward. Yeah. That's super productive. That's yeah. Good. Companies that's... pay for this. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. <laughs> they pay for it more ways than one too. Yeah. They pay for it. Just a, just a lost productivity. They pay for it in culture and morale and, and engagement and quality control, everything. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so finishing up my example, so you take 4,000 times 48, you get $192,000. And if you're relying on your own ability to bill $100 an hour, and I say you might get halfway there, well, Brandon, have you ever had a day you showed up at work and you're just kind of having an off day and just didn't really feel like it, so you kind of phoned it in? No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, because that's part of the human condition. Some days you're really on, and some days you're just on. And some days, you know, it's like you're just off your game. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to be clocking $100 an hour. And then if you're billing $100 an hour, what are you doing? Incremental work? Well, now you have to guarantee that uh, you're going you're gonna to bring in uh, $192,000 worth of those uh, increments. And you better have some pretty damn good marketing if you're not only – in the business yourself full-time 40 hours a week when are you marketing it yeah and i think that there's a big there's a big problem that a lot of business owners get they get wrapped up in their brain when they start thinking about dollars per hour and they start associating the activities they have in their business with dollars per hour uh, because there are tasks in your business that are worth a thousand ten thousand dollars per hour of investment of your time Right. So, I mean, we had one of our clients in our Conquer program. Uh, he spent only about three hours worth of really focused, intentional time. Uh, he was out of the field. He intentionally moved himself out of the field, was no longer a technician out in the field. Um, he had some managers in place and it really freed him up to be able to work on the high level tasks, such as spending three hours to create some really focused videos that he would send out every single proposal that he went out, every bid that he went out. There'd be a little video embedded on the quote yeah. that was personal from him. And he saw a 7% increase in his closing ratios just from that little three hours worth of work. Over the course of the year, that added another $320,000 onto his, you know, his top line revenue just from those sales closings, you know, the, those, those little three hours of intentional effort. And, you know, if you divide that by three hours, I mean, you know, that's, that, that activity, the impact that it has to your business is so much greater than the little technical things that you can, you know, farm out to other employees uh, so that you can play in that space. So you can play in the high level business development and strategy planning space and not the right. 
I got to go out and deliver the actual services to my client space. Yeah. And going back to what I said at the beginning of our conversation, where I said that there's one element of my business or one section of my business, I can't really leverage that because, and I use the analogy of it'd be like Pablo Picasso going on on Upwork to find people to do the paintings. It just doesn't work that way in the real world. At the same time, I was able to look at what I was doing on a day-to-day basis and recognize that there were, I mean, if we want to just, you know, put me in the role of Pablo Picasso, the guy who makes the paintings, there are things that I don't have to do myself, like uh, mixing the paint, buying the paint, uh, getting the canvas, uh, having somebody to be my gatekeeper so my phone's not ringing when I'm trying to create a masterpiece. Right. There are a lot, there are a lot of peripheral things that you can take off so you can focus on being the painter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the difference between having a, you know, a boutique artisan business and having something that can scale. But, you know, I mean, when, when one of the ways that I like to take a look at it is, is that, you know, whatever your income level is or whatever your business brings in on an annual basis is directly tied to how much value you provide to the world. So, I mean, if, even if you're like, say a surgeon, that's a very artisan type of a business model. Like you're, you're not going to, if you're a surgeon, you're delivering a high value, but to only one single person at a time. So that's going to be capped off how much you're able to bring in into your business because that value you're giving is, is great, but it's only to one single person at a time. You can't, you know, operate on multiple, multiple dozens of people at once. And, uh, however, if you're the person that has, you know, the, the medical device that can be sold to a billion people throughout the world. I mean, look at what a difference of value it's creating, you know, over the course of more possible people. And the only way that you can get to that scale is by, you know, is by having that team, by having that, those, those things in place to be able to provide more value to more people. So what's an easy way to create systems? One of the things that I like to do is I like to tell people to just document it while you're actually doing the thing. So if you are, you know, for instance, a, a service business owner and you're the guy that's on the truck or out in the field and you're training a new employee on how to, uh, you know, how to, how to mow, mow an edge lawn. let's say you're a landscaper, how, how to mow an edge lawn, and he's sitting there and you're, you're teaching him step by step. One of the things that I like to tell service business owners to do is, is hand your phone over to the employee and just tell them, just hit record. And then while you're teaching this employee, you're talking into a camera and you're going through all the steps of how to start the engine and how to prime it and how to, you know, set it up and the angles you need when you're mowing. When you have now said that to a recorded uh, system, now you never have to repeat those words to a future employee ever again. You can sit down and you can have them watch training videos as they come in. Uh, Training and onboarding systems to me, I think are one of the most overlooked components uh, in businesses, uh, because they just, you know, they, they just do it through brute force of just utilizing their own time. And it's such a waste of energy, mm-hmm. especially as a CEO or as a manager, as someone that, you know, is co- constantly finding themselves repeating instructions to someone else, uh, start documenting that so that it can be automated in that type of a way. Yeah. Okay. I just, I discovered Camtasia video 14 or 15 years ago. Right. And I recognized one of the places where it has huge powers when I have to explain something that takes time. 
Right. And let me let me give you an example, one of which is to document a technical process. You will get, I mean, if it's like step-by-step step, how to post the blog or step-by-step step, how to mow and edge the lawn. These are things that if you are trying to explain to somebody while they're doing it, they're going to keep interrupting you with questions. They're going to say, oh, but the, the, I, so-and-so said there's this other way you should do it. Um, that's <laughs> right. not helpful. So I discovered that when I was helping people to understand technical things, I would film it and then say, here it is, watch it, try it, and let me know what questions you have. And if you need a five-minute call to go over something after you've watched it and tried it. So that helped to actually get them up and running faster, and it's helped save me a lot of time because I could also deliver that asymmetrically. I could do it at night and then just have it for them the next morning if that was how my schedule was working out. Yeah. And I had a, and, and occasionally when I do that stuff, uh, I people come back to me and, and they'll say, "Okay, well, I need you to show me how to." Let's use your example, mow and edge lawn. I'll say, "Cool. Did you get that video I sent? Yeah. <laughs> did you Did you watch did you it? Watch well, it? no." It's like, okay, well, uh, you need to go, well, I don't like to watch the videos. I just went to the, well, I just showed you how I'm watching the videos. So that's the help you're getting. Go, go at mow and edge the lawn. Bye. Yeah. yeah and, I've I, al and I've also found this helpful for when I have to explain concepts that involve demos. So hmm. if I'm reporting back on research I've done, or I'm doing a teaching module on an intellectual concept and I need to display things. I find it helpful if I can, you know, have, I can, I can show web pages on my screen and if I can put into a PowerPoint where it has bullet points, it's easy for them to follow. And the reason I found that helpful, especially when you're dealing with work teams is then you don't have to have the same conversation 20 freaking times. Right. Yeah. 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 See all these, all these things, these little small systems you can put in place. Um, I mean, your, your business right now, is perfectly systemized, fully optimized to get you the exact result that it's currently getting. Right. So, I mean, you know, w whether the system is when someone, uh, you know, answer, you know, gives me a call, I have to, in my own brain, you know, come up with the pricing, come up with this, and then I have to, you know, put it on my paper calendar or whatever it is. People feel like their business is lacking in systems, but the problem is it's, it's not. The reality is, is, you're actually not lacking in systems right now. Your business is perfectly systemized to get the result you're currently getting. If you want to get a different result, you have to tweak and optimize and change the systems inside of your business. So yeah. I think sometimes, you know, people have this, this, uh, this view of this perfectly optimized, fully systemized business from start to finish. But the thing is, is that the landscape, the business landscape and the economic landscape is always changing. You always need to be adapting and tweaking and optimizing your systems to get a different result. And I think that, you know, people hesitate at putting systems in because they feel like they have to be perfect and they need to do all the research to make sure that what they're doing is the uh -huh. exact most perfect thing. When it's like, you don't need to do that. You just need to just get a first iteration going of a system and then you can tweak it because- even a first iteration is better than what you're currently doing right now and just make those incremental changes. Actually, you went somewhere I was headed. Uh, part of the organizational consulting work I do is I work with teams and using applications like teamwork, for instance, you know, project management type systems. And part of that work involves designing processes for how to do things in the business. 
especially when it's something they've either never done before and or it involves multiple different team members. So you have cross-discipline and cross-function issues wrapped into it as well. Mm. And I've designed these things. And then a couple weeks later, I hear back from the client, your process doesn't work. Well, we can skip the part where I find out if they actually tried it. And I'm going to err on the side of most of them have. Well, what doesn't work? Well, we did this and we found that this was actually an extra step or it turns out this step was missing. And I said, great. What, what do you mean that's great? We need systems that work. Exactly. Now your system's really going to work because, <laughs> right. if, because if, all, <laughs> if we had done like 19 beta tests yeah. and run, run it through four committees and brought two second set of eyes consultants involved in it and a partridge in a pear tree, you never actually would have tried it. And you never would have found out how it really works in your own organization. So tell me what else is broken about it. And now we know exactly how to move from version one to version 1.1, yeah. which is part of the plan that I didn't tell you about because I wanted you to actually try it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it, this is, this, what you're describing right now is exactly how engineers think. And one thing I find is when I meet you know, systems creators and systems optimizers like you, um, you, you think in, the, in terms of engineering. And if you look at the engineering design process, you know, it always starts out with, you know, first, you, you know, you define the problem, you do some background research, you know, you kind of build out a spec and then you try to, you know, optimize and find a solution for it. But before you build out the whole, the whole solution and the whole system, before you build the final working model, you always, engineers always build a prototype and they're always rough, sketched out and not a hundred percent developed. Because the, the biggest core critical part to a system is evaluation and, you know, on a prototype. So you build a prototype, then you evaluate it, you tweak it, you adjust it, you get feedback. And that feedback loop helps create a perfect system. I, I find that a lot of people, they just want the system delivered to them so that they can just plug it in and then it's just done. But the problem is there's just too many different variables in different businesses and different companies yeah. uh, to where, you know, really, hey, look, here's, here's an example of a system. You can take it, but please take it, tweak it, adjust it, and how it fits with your culture and your company and your, you know, your people. Because people's a really big variable in systems. It <laughs> it's is. like a huge variable in systems. Uh -huh. And um, I think if more people followed that engineering design process and, and really focused on, okay, this is just a prototype. Let's just try it out. And then we can, you know, get some tweaks, but they feel like it has to be perfect before they actually implement it. But no engineers are building something before they prototype it. They're not just building a final working model and sticking it out there in market. They're right. always prototyping it first. Yeah. Another analogy is science. Uh, and what is science? But testing, really. When I took science classes in school, the thing that sticks with me most is the whole process of creating uh, creating a hypothesis and then testing that hypothesis. Whenever, and, and again, I don't want to get into uh, any sort of political type debate here, but when you hear the term settled, silent, settled science, to me, that is a red flag that you are up against a totalitarian agenda. Because if there was such a thing as settled science, polio would still be ravaging the world because at one point, science said we couldn't solve 
polio. Uh, right. Little Billy would be still be in an iron lung because at one point science <laughs> said that's the best we could do for little Billy. That's right. Uh, we yeah. would still be giving babies stalidomide because mm-hmm. the science at one point said give babies stalidomide. Mm-hmm. So settled. What 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 the hell does settled mean? That sounds like you're trying to you're trying to tell me that there's one right answer and I deserve to be destroyed if I think anything differently. That is not science. Science is when you look at something, you have a belief about it, and you test models to discover what part of your hypothesis is correct or likely correct. And by running the hypothesis, you discover things you may not have found or uncovered in your research or your initial forecasting. Yeah, I love that analogy. I think that's fantastic because, I mean, I think I've even I've even heard it presented that science is uh, is just basically narrowing uncertainty. It's not you know finding facts about things. It's just narrowing uncertainty about those facts. Right. And it's a it's a moving target, like you said. You know, if you, it's such a it's such a cool analogy because uh, so many business owners they're always in search for that ultimate perfection. And I think we try to do that with our systems, but you know, it's just, it's narrowing and it's improving results. That's pretty much yeah. all that it is. I Precisely. Like it. And if you're not, and if you're not continually revisiting these things and testing new hypotheses, like uh, when you hear settled science, that's a phrase that's often used um, in discussions about climate change. Well, the science is settled that the, <laughs> that the polar bears are dying. And then you come up with another study based on another hypothesis that shows we actually have more polar bears than we used to. Um, like science as a person yeah so so by contradicting that they say oh you you're a climate change denier well i'm not a client a climate change denier in fact i happen to know that part of the reason that constantinople fell in 1453 was due to climate change Hmm. believe Hmm. it or not believe it or not it's because it's because a volcano blew somewhere on the other side of the world and some of the people at the gates of constantinople thought it was a sign from god i kid you not Mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> i mean uh, and then uh, and then you go back to 1816 which was uh, uh which is also known as the year of 1800 and froze to death also known as the year without a summer because mm-hmm. it was snowing in june where it should have been 80 degrees again because a volcano blew somewhere mm-hmm. so there's so you know, you don't have to, you know, you're not a denier just because you reject or question a settled science. Uh, you may have another hypothesis about it. And that comes back to thinking about business. So when, so if you have an organizational culture that says, this is the one right way and everything else is wrong. Right. Oh, now, now you know you're facing a cultural issue that uh, can, again, be boiled down to a totalitarian agenda. Because yeah. what, I mean... So there's no room for innovation here because that's basically what you're saying. Right. It reminds me of the book, Who Moved My Cheese? Yes. Where, you know, it's just like, well, this is the way that we've always been doing. It's been working good for us for the last 20, 30 years. And, um, you know, you can never be, you can never be too sure. I mean, you can, you can, it, it stifles innovation to be so sure that a specific system or the way that we've always done things is the way to always do things. And um, I mean, it's why, I mean, look at Blockbuster, look at all the, the host of different businesses that we could mention that had that kind of viewpoint that, well, you know, this is, this is how we've always done. It's always worked successfully. Uh-huh. And, then, and then suddenly they're in the, the business boneyard. <laughs> 
Yeah, blo- yeah, yeah. Blockbuster said that. Uh, well, it's settled. VHS tapes are, tapes are as far as we're going to get, and then DVDs come out. And yeah, naturally, of course, DVDs are originally expensive, but you have your early adopters, and the price comes down. It's the same with flat screen TVs, and now we're seeing a move past DVDs into live streaming, where uh, people buy DVDs of movies and shows they really 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 like and are part of their annual binge rotation but as far as their day-to-day stuff they don't have to go and buy the movie they'll just pay two dollars and 99 cents to stream at 48 hours right so so and uh and that's where companies like uh yeah amazon netflix hulu etc 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 they saw the future because they saw the evolution of computers and the ability to disseminate information and how technology was becoming more available to the masses. And they saw that before you knew it, we could just watch movies on our computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, and you don't, and there's no VHS thing on my laptop here. Yeah, that's right. It's true. Yeah, for sure. Right. So what I love about our conversation here today is how we've been able to look at some of the some of the mindsets to go behind this this evolution thing. We have five minutes left here. So there's two more things I want to do. I want to give you about two minutes here. And if you could just briefly list for us what you call the seven stages of belief, I think that would be a great place to end. The seven stages of belief. Yeah, this is this is a journey that every single entrepreneur goes through. Uh, especially someone who's just starting their business, um, getting to a place where you actually start believe, believing that you can do something. Yeah. Uh, w- when I first started my business, my five-year plan was us growing from $100,000 to $240,000 uh, over the course of five years. I, my, my, that, was, that was fact. That was my belief center on what I could actually accomplish. Um, whereas in that same five-year period, we were doing you know, $450,000 months uh, at the end of that. So at the beginning, typically business owners, they start out in fear. That's the first stage of belief. Right. Uh, you're, you're scared of grow. You're scared of risks. You're scared of the unknown. You're scared of failure. Um, the second stage of belief is justification. You say, well, you know, getting bigger means more problems. No one could do as good of a job as me. You blame it on past experiences or people that you know. You just kind of justify it. Uh, the third stage of belief is a breakthrough moment when you finally see somebody else doing it and yeah. you see that there's someone else that is accomplishing what you thought was impossible. Uh, the, the fourth stage is denial <laughs> where, yeah. where you'll say, well, you know, that'll, that'll never work here. There's too much competition. Uh, you know, that picture of that fleet was Photoshopped or it's probably not profitable. You know, it's all about the net, you know, all those keywords to try to, you know, tear that down. Um, and then the, the fifth is depression. The fifth stage of belief is when you finally realize that, um, you know, it's, it's you, there's, there's, there's a problem, uh, which leads into, uh, acceptance finally that you've accepted that it's you and that you need to change and you get guidance from others that have already done it. And then that takes you to the seventh stage of belief, which is probably the most important is execution where you actually have to finally take that leap off the cliff and build the plane on the way down. And, and, you know, now that you believe that it can exist, now you actually uh, execute on a game plan. And, it's, yeah. and that's, that's typically what I kind of see as those, those seven stages of belief that every entrepreneur goes through. Absolutely. And I know you have a little something for our listeners, a little gift for us. So if you could tell us about that as we wrap up. So people are getting ready to tune out. We want to send them somewhere where they can do something. 
Absolutely. If you head over to uh, agsconquer.com, agsconquer.com, and then type in slash BCS for your listeners. I believe it's BCR. Thank you. BCR. Yes. BCR. So uh, agsconquer.com slash BCR. Um, we'll we, we'll talk, talk a little bit more information about uh, the five stages of business growth and um, you know, how to get from one stage to stage five. And uh, the, the cool thing about it is this document, it's a, it's a you know, 40 page document that goes through all the systems you need in your service business to move from stage one to stage five and what KPIs and what metrics and really clearly it kind of identifies a path for growth. Cause I think that's where a lot of business owners struggle with is knowing what's next. Uh, so agsconquer.com slash BCR, and you could go download that, uh, that link there. All right. Awesome. So Brandon Vaughn, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, Adam. All right. For everybody listening, I really appreciate you tuning in and I trust you've enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.